Section 45 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Method Chapter 2 The Canon of Pure Reason Section 2 Of the Ideal of the Summum Bonum as a Determining Ground of the Ultimate End of Pure Reason Read by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio April 2007 Section 2 Of the Ideal of the Summum Bonum as a Determining Ground of the Ultimate End of Pure Reason Reason conducted us, in its speculative use, through the field of experience and, as it can never find complete satisfaction in that sphere, from thence to speculative ideas, which, however, in the end brought us back again to experience, and thus fulfilled the purpose of reason, in a manner which, though useful, was not at all in accordance with our expectations. It now remains for us to consider whether pure reason can be employed in a practical sphere, and whether it will here conduct us to those ideas which attain the highest ends of pure reason, as we have just stated them. We shall thus ascertain whether, from the point of view of its practical interest, reason may not be able to supply us with that which, on the speculative side, it wholly denies us. The whole interest of reason, speculative as well as practical, is centered in the three following questions. 1. What can I know? 2. What ought I to do? 3. What may I hope? The first question is purely speculative. We have, as I flatter myself, exhausted all the replies of which it is susceptible, and have at last found the reply to which reason must contend itself, and with which it ought to be content so long as it pays no regard to the practical. But from the two great ends of the attainment of which all these efforts of pure reason were in fact directed, we remained just as far removed as if we had consulted our ease and declined the task at the outset. So far, then, as knowledge is concerned, this much, at least, is established, that, in regard to those two problems, it lies beyond our reach. The second question is purely practical. As such, it may indeed fall within the province of pure reason, but still it is not transcendental, but moral, and consequently cannot in itself form the subject of our criticism. The third question, if I act as I ought to do, what may I then hope, is at once practical and theoretical. The practical forms a clue to the answer of the theoretical and, in its highest form, speculative question. For all hoping is happiness for its object, and stands in precisely the same relation to the practical and the law of morality as knowing to the theoretical cognition of things and the law of nature. The former arrives finally at the conclusion that something is, prens, which determines the ultimate end, and prens, because something ought to take place. The latter, that something is, which operates as the highest cause, in prins, because something does take place. Happiness is the satisfaction of all our desires, extensive in regard to their multiplicity, intensive in regard to their degree, and protensive in regard to their duration. 
The practical law based on the motive of happiness I term pragmatical law, or prudential rule, close parens. but that law, assuming such to exist, which has no other motive than the worthiness of being happy, I term a moral or ethical law. The first tells us what we have to do if we wish to become possessed of happiness. The second dictates how we ought to act in order to deserve happiness. The first is based upon empirical principles, for it is only by experience that I can learn either what inclinations exist which desire satisfaction, or what are the natural means of satisfying them. The second takes no account of our desires or the means of satisfying them, and regards only the freedom of a rational being, and the necessary conditions under which alone this freedom can harmonize with the distribution of happiness according to the principles. This second law may therefore rest upon mere ideas of pure reason, and may be cognized a priori. I assume that there are pure moral laws which determine, entirely a priori, parens, without regard to empirical motives, that is to happiness, close parens, the conduct of a rational being, or in other words, to use which it makes of its freedom, and that these laws are absolutely imperative, parens, not merely hypothetically on the supposition of other empirical ends, close parens, and therefore in all respects necessary. I am warranted in assuming this not only by the arguments of the most enlightened moralists, but by the moral judgment of every man who will make the attempt to form a distinct conception of such a law. Pure reason then contains not indeed in its speculative, but in its practical or more strictly its moral use, principles of the possibility of experience, of such actions namely as, in accordance with ethical precepts, might be met within the history of man. For since reason commands that such actions should take place, it must be possible for them to take place, and hence a particular kind of systematic unity, the moral, must be possible. We have found, it is true, that the systematic unity of nature could not be established according to speculative principles of reason, because, while reason possesses a causal power in relation to freedom, it has none in relation to the whole sphere of nature. And, while moral principles of reason can produce free actions, they cannot produce natural laws. It is, then, in its practical, but especially in its moral use, that the principles of pure reason possess objective reality. I call the world a moral world insofar as it may be in accordance with all the ethical laws, which, by virtue of the freedom of reasonable beings, it can be, and according to the necessary laws of morality, it ought to be. But this world must be conceived only as an intelligible world, inasmuch as abstraction is therein made of all conditions, parens, ends, and parens, and even of all impediments to morality, parens, the weakness or pravity of human nature, and parens. So far, then, it is a mere idea, though still a practical idea, which may have and ought to have an influence on the world of sense, so as to bring it as far as possible into conformity with itself. The idea of a moral world has, therefore, objective reality, not as referring to an object of intelligible intuition, for of such an object we can form no conception whatever, but to the world of sense, conceived, however, as an object of pure reason in its practical use, and to a corpus mysticum of rational beings in it, in so far as the liberum arbitrium of the individual is placed, under and by virtue of moral laws, 
in complete systematic unity both with itself and with the freedom of all others. That is the answer to the first of the two questions of pure reason which relate to its practical interest. Do that which will render thee worthy of happiness. The second question is this. If I conduct myself so as not to be unworthy of happiness, may I hope thereby to obtain happiness? In order to arrive at the solution of this question, we must inquire whether the principles of pure reason, which prescribe a priori the law, necessarily also connect this hope with it. I say, then, that just as the moral principles are necessary according to reason in its practical use, so is it equally necessary according to reason in its theoretical use to assume that every one has a ground to hope for happiness in the measure in which he has made himself worthy of it in his conduct, and that therefore the system of morality is inseparably, parens, though only in the idea of pure reason, close parens, connected with that of happiness. Now, in an intelligible, that is, in the moral world, in the conception of which we make abstraction of all the impediments to morality, sensuous desires, and friends, such a system of happiness, connected with and proportioned to morality, may be conceived as necessary, because freedom of volition, partially incited and partially restrained by moral laws, would be itself the cause of general happiness, and thus rational beings, under the guidance of such principles, would be themselves the authors both of their own enduring welfare and that of others. But such a system of self-rewarding morality is only an idea, the carrying out of which depends upon the condition that everyone acts as he ought. In other words, that all actions of reasonable beings be such as they would be if they sprung from a supreme will, comprehending in or under itself all particular wills. But since the moral law is binding on each individual in the use of his freedom of volition, even if others should not act in conformity with this law, Neither the nature of things, nor the causality of actions and their relation to morality, determine how the consequences of these actions will be related to happiness. And the necessary connection of the hope of happiness with the unceasing endeavor to become worthy of happiness cannot be cognized by reason, if we take nature alone for our guide. This connection can be hoped for only on the assumption that the cause of nature is a supreme reason, which governs according to moral laws. I term the idea of an intelligence in which the morally most perfect will, united with supreme blessedness, is the cause of all happiness in the world so far as happiness stands in strict relation to morality, parens as the worthiness of being happy, close parens, the ideal of the supreme good. It is only, then, in the ideal of the supreme original good that pure reason can find the ground of the practically necessary connection of both elements of the highest derivative good and accordingly of an intelligible, that is, moral world. Now since we are necessitated by reason to conceive ourselves as belonging to such a world, while the senses present to us nothing but a world of phenomena, we must assume the former as a consequence of our conduct in the world of sense, parens, since the world of sense gives us no hint of it, parens, and therefore as future in relation to us. Thus God and a future life are two hypotheses which, according to the principles of pure reason, are inseparable from the obligation which this reason imposes upon us. Morality per se constitutes a system, but we can form no system of happiness except in so far as it is dispensed in strict proportion to morality. But this is only possible in the intelligible world under a wise author and ruler. 
such a ruler, together with life in such a world, which we must look upon as future, reason finds itself compelled to assume, or it must regard the moral laws as idle dreams, since the necessary consequence which the same reason connects with them must, without this hypothesis, fall to the ground. Hence also the moral laws are universally regarded as commands, which they could not be, did they not connect a priori adequate consequences with their dictates, and thus carry with them promises and threats. But this again they could not do, did they not reside in a necessary being, as the supreme good, which alone can render such a teleological unity possible. Leibniz termed the world, when viewed in relation to the rational being which it contains, and the moral relations in which they stand to each other, under government of the supreme good, the kingdom of grace, and distinguished it from the kingdom of nature, in which these rational beings live, under moral laws, indeed, but expect no other consequences from their actions than such as follows according to the course of nature in the world of sense. To view ourselves, therefore, as in the kingdom of grace, in which all happiness awaits us except in so far as we ourselves limit our participation in it by actions which render us unworthy of happiness, is a practically necessary idea of reason. Practical laws, in so far as they are subjective grounds of action, that is, subjective principles, are termed maxims. The judgments of morality, in its purity and ultimate results, are framed according to ideas, the observance of its laws according to maxims. The whole course of our life must be subject to moral maxims, but this is impossible unless with the moral law, which is a mere idea, reason connects an efficient cause which ordains to all conduct which is in conformity with the moral law an issue either in this or in another life, which is in exact conformity with our highest aims. Thus, without a God and without a world, invisible to us now, but hoped for, the glorious ideas of morality are indeed objects of approbation of admiration, but cannot be the springs of purpose and action. For they do not satisfy all the aims which are natural to every rational being, and which are determined a priori by pure reason itself, and necessary. Happiness alone is, in the view of reason, far from being the complete good. Reason does not approve of it, however much inclination may desire it, and parens, except as united with desert. On the other hand, morality alone, and with it mere desert, is likewise far from being the complete good. To make it complete, he who conducts himself in a manner not unworthy of happiness must be able to hope for the possession of happiness. Even reason, unbiased by private ends or interested considerations, cannot judge otherwise if it puts itself in the place of being whose business it is to dispense all happiness to others. For in the practical idea both points are essentially combined, though in such a way that participation in happiness is rendered possible by the moral disposition as its condition, and not conversely, the moral disposition by the prospect of happiness. For a disposition which should require the prospect of happiness as its necessary condition would not be moral and hence also would not be worthy of complete happiness, a happiness which, in the view of reason, recognizes no limitation but such as arises from its own immoral conduct. Happiness, therefore, in exact proportion with the morality of rational beings, 
parens, whereby they are made worthy of happiness, and parens, constitutes alone the supreme good of a world into which we absolutely must transport ourselves according to commands of pure but practical reason. The world is, it is true, only an intelligible world, for of such a systematic unity of ends as it requires, the world of sense gives us no hint. Its reality can be based on nothing else but the hypothesis of a supreme original good. In it, independent reason, equipped with all the sufficiency of a supreme cause, founds, maintains, and fulfills the universal order of things with the most perfect teleological harmony, however much this order may be hidden from us in the world of sense. This moral theology has the peculiar advantage, in contrast with speculative theology, of leading inevitably to the conception of a sole, perfect, and rational first cause, whereof speculative theology does not give us any indication on objective grounds, far less any convincing evidence. For we find neither in transcendental nor in natural theology, however far reason may lead us in these, any ground to warrant us in assuming the existence of one only being, which stands at the head of all natural causes and on which these are entirely dependent. On the other hand, if we take our stand on moral unity as a necessary law of the universe, and from this point of view consider what is necessary to give this law adequate efficiency and, for us, obligatory force, we must come to the conclusion that there is one only supreme will which comprehends all these laws in itself. For how, under different wills, should we find complete unity of ends? This will must be omnipotent, that all nature in relation to morality in the world may be subject to it, omniscient, that it may have knowledge of the most secret feelings and their moral worth, omnipresent, that it may be at hand to supply every necessity to which the highest wheel of the world may give rise, eternal, that this harmony of nature and liberty may never fail, and so on. But this systematic unity of ends in this world of intelligences, which, as mere nature, is only a world of sense, but as a system of freedom of volition may be termed an intelligible, that is, moral world, parens regnum gratiae, leads inevitably also to the teleological unity of all things which constitute this great whole, according to universal natural laws, just as the unity of the former is according to universal and necessary moral laws, and unites the practical with the speculative reason. The world must be represented as having originated from an idea if it is to harmonize with the use of reason without which we cannot even consider ourselves as worthy of reason, namely, the moral use, which rests entirely on the idea of the supreme good. Hence the investigation of nature receives a teleological direction and becomes, in its widest extension, physico-theology. But this, taking its rise in moral order as a unity founded on the essence of freedom, and not accidentally instituted by external commands, establishes the teleological view of nature on grounds which must be inseparably connected with the internal possibility of things. This gives rise to a transcendental theology, which takes the ideal of the highest ontological perfection as a principle of systematic unity, and this principle connects all things according to universal and necessary natural laws, because all things have their origin in the absolute necessity of the one, only, primal being. What use can we make of our understanding, even in respect of experience, if we do not propose ends to ourselves? But the highest ends, 
are those of morality, and it is only pure reason that can give us the knowledge of these. Though supplied with these, and putting ourselves under their guidance, we can make no teleological use of the knowledge of nature as regards cognition, unless nature itself has established teleological unity. For without this unity, we should not even possess reason, because we should have no school for reason, and no cultivation through objects which afford the materials for its conception. But ideological unity is a necessary unity, and founded on the essence of the individual will itself. Hence this will, which is the condition of the application of this unity in concreto, must be so likewise. In this way, the transcendental enlargement of our rational cognition would be not the cause, but merely the effect of the practical teleology which pure reason imposes upon us. Hence, also, we find in the history of human reason that before the moral conceptions were sufficiently purified and determined, and before men had attended to the perception of systematic unity of ends according to the conceptions and from necessary principles, the knowledge of nature, and even a considerable amount of intellectual culture and many other sciences, could produce only rude and vague conceptions of the deity, sometimes even admitting of an astonishing indifference with regard to this question altogether. But the more enlarged treatment of moral ideas, which was rendered necessary by the extremely pure moral law of our religion, awakened the interest, and thereby quickened the perception of reason in relation to this object. In this way, and without the help either of an extended acquaintance with nature or of a reliable transcendental insight, parens, for these having been wanting in all ages, close parens, a conception of the divine being was arrived at, which we now hold to be the correct one, not because speculative reason convinces us of its correctness, but because it accords with the moral principles of reason. Thus it is the pure reason, but only in its practical use, that we must describe the merit of having connected with our highest interest a cognition, of which mere speculation was able only to form a conjecture, but the validity of which it was unable to establish, and of having thereby rendered it, not indeed a demonstrated dogma, but a hypothesis absolutely necessary to the essential ends of reason. But if practical reason has reached this elevation, and has attained to the conception of a sole primal being as the supreme good, it must not, therefore, imagine that it has transcended the empirical conditions of its application, and risen to the immediate cognition of new objects. It must not presume to start from the conception which it has gained, and to deduce from it the moral laws themselves. For it was these very laws, the internal practical necessity of which led us to the hypothesis of an independent cause, or of a wise ruler of the universe, who should give them effect. Hence we are not entitled to regard them as accidental and derived from the mere will of the ruler, especially as we have no conception of such a will except as formed in accordance with these laws. So far, then, as practical reason has the right to conduct us, we shall not look upon actions as binding on us, because they are the commands of God, but we shall regard them as divine commands because we are internally bound by them. We shall study freedom under the teleological unity which accords with the principles of reason. We shall look upon ourselves as acting in conformity with the divine will only in so far as we hold sacred the moral law which reason teaches us from the nature of actions themselves, and we shall believe that we can obey that will only by promoting the will of the universe in ourselves and in others.
Moral theology is, therefore, only of imminent use. It teaches us to fulfill our destiny here in the world by placing ourselves in harmony with the general system of ends, and warns us against the fanaticism, nay, the crime of depriving reason of its legitimate authority in the moral conduct of life, for the purpose of directly connecting this authority with the idea of the Supreme Being. For this would be not an imminent but a transcendent use of moral theology, and like the transcendent use of mere speculation, would inevitably pervert and frustrate the ultimate ends of reason. End of section 45